ladies, gentlemen, fellow wizards, muggles. Right-wing populist parties, individuals, and activists worldwide are a threat to minorities and to democracies. Side governments solve this problem. What are our definitions in this debate? We think courts should decide if these are right-wing populists using five criteria. The first is nativism, i.e. the scapegoating of immigrants and ethnic minorities. The second is hostility towards elites, particularly institutions like the media and the courts. The third is excessive authoritarian approach to law and order. The fourth is a disregard for political correctness and truth. And the fifth, and crucially, is that because of a desire to appeal to a broad coalition of disaffected individuals, spanning the socio-political divide and often with different political desires, they often have a shallow policy agenda designed to appeal to as many people as possible. What does it look like? It looks like Trump in the US, Duterte in the Philippines, the AFD in Germany. What's our model for dealing with these individuals and groups? We would institute a range of restrictions on free speech of political parties and their activists. That goes from shutting down websites and individuals which advocate on their behalf, like Breitbart or Milo Yiannopoulos, to not providing them with a platform, not reporting on them in the media or allowing them to speak in town hall events, to banning them from social media, or in some instances, being happy to ban them from co contesting elections entirely. We think that's an extension of the precedent set in the banning of the neo-Nazi party in Germany and of states around the world in banning hate speech. We would note that while the unique phenomenon of right-wing populism is a problem today, where a similar problem to arise with left-wing populism, we would support this policy there too. We have two burdens in this debate. The first is to show you that this policy is justified, and the second is to show you that this is an effective way of dealing with the danger that right-wing populists present. With that in mind, we're bringing you three arguments. The first is that we combat the threat to minorities. The second is that this harms the development of solutions to the problems which lead to right-wing populists coming about at all. And the third in Ed's speech is how this is a fundamental affront to democracy. Before I move on to my first argument about the Con about how we actually combat the threat to minorities, what are the principal parameters within which this debate takes place? Two things. The first is that democracy necessitates a balance of rights, because the rights of individuals sometimes contradict each other. My right to wave my wand in the air contradicts Kenza's right not to get poked in the eye. We believe that protecting the most vulnerable from physical harm weighs up more than the ability of certain individuals to have freedom of speech. I'm going to be dealing with that principally in my speech. The second principal parameter which this debate takes place within is that Democracy can only happen if it's truth-led. When you are anti-truth, you forfeit your right to the protections of free speech. Ed's going to be talking to you about that principally in his speech. Sure. Before I move on to my third, first argument about how we combat the threat to minorities, yeah. What exactly is this one characteristic that is so exclusive to right-wing populism? Wouldn't you end up banning a lot of other ideologies that have similar characteristics? Okay, we told you that courts are good at deciding whether things and individuals fall into certain categories. We gave you literally five characteristics that define right-wing populist movements. If courts decide that an individual or a group is part of that movement, then they'll ban those, those movements, then they'll institute these kinds of free speech protections. Not sure what they're getting at there. On to my first argument, which is about how we combat the threat to minority groups. Because right-wing populism thrives on riling people up and channeling their anger. That's because right-wing populists are overwhelmingly problem and not solution-oriented. Why? Because the reason that they're so popular is that they're able to appeal to diverse coalitions of individuals, often with very little in common. So someone living in a trailer park in northern Florida has 
basically nothing in common with a soccer mum living in the Midwest, but they're united by being broadly disaffected with the status quo. The policy demands of these people, economically and socially, are very different. So, in order to maintain this, this coalition, right-wing populists do two things. Firstly, they promise very shallow things. They have very unspecific policies or unsubstantiated catch-all magic wand policies. Secondly, they focus on the problems that their, their followers face as opposed to the solutions which divide them. In an attempt to flatten the causes of these problems into something which can nominally easily be solved, they often blame minority groups for all of these issues. That means drug dealers in the Philippines, Mexicans in the US, Moroccans in the Netherlands are blamed for all of the problems which the followers of populists face. The reason that blaming minorities leads to increased violence is threefold. The first is that they take the anger that individuals have and they direct it at a minority for a political advantage. This anger goes beyond normal anger because the issues that these individuals are facing every single day suddenly becomes tied to minorities. Secondly, they change permission mechanisms because they make these views mainstream. That means people think it's okay to be or act racistly because views have been legitimized by others, whether in rallies, or in votes. Thirdly, when these populist parties get in power, they can, because they can't implement legitimate policies without alienating a segment of their voter base, instead, they're forced to use discriminatory policies to distract from their failure to solve problems. So Trump is forced to try and implement a Muslim ban to distract from the fact that he can't actually solve the problems that his voters are facing without alienating other parts of his voter base. What are the impacts of this? You create a society where minorities live in fear. Fear of being attacked, fear of being spat on on their way to school, fear of not being able to get a job because they're discriminated against in interviews. In extreme cases, their freedom of movement is restricted when they're too afraid to leave their homes. Look, we don't think it's surprising that in the aftermath of the Brexit vote, hate crimes went up 40%. That during the US presidential election, hate crimes against religious and ethnic minorities went up 41%. That's not surprising, and our policy solves this by reducing the ability of right-wing populists to spread their hatred. My second argument is about the har how this harms the development of solutions which affect the disaffected. Look, we think there's a legitimate debate to be had over some of these issues, right? We think that disaffected people's concerns unquestionably should be listened to. And there's a conversation that we should have about, for example, how undocumented workers are able to undercut wages. Why does the free speech of right-wing po populists actually undermine that debate? Two reasons. First, because it drags politics to the right-wing populist gutter. Because right-wing populists try to take chunks out of the voters of centrist parties by doing things like scapegoating minorities, those centrist parties are forced to move to the right in order to try and keep hold of those voters. The DPP in Denmark was able to pull the Danish Liberal Party right to the point when a party that previously was pro-immigration and asylum seekers ran on a platform of explicitly limiting the number of asylum seekers able to come into that country. The second way that they distort the politics and they harm the development of solutions is because of a lack of nuance in the language that these politicians use. Populist candidates use charisma and shocking language to get free airtime and to show themselves to be saying what the people are thinking. Other parties, in order to compete, are forced to also use shock tactics. So One Nation in Australia was able to change the debate on immigration to the point when the yellow peril was a phrase that was actually commonly used. We think you can't have a proper political debate when the language that you're using is unnuanced, when you're conflating asylum seekers and refugees and immigrants in a way that only populist parties force politics to do. On our side of the house, we're able to escape the noise of populism. We're able to rise above the din. And we're able to have a conversation between centrist politicians, which leads to actual 
nuanced, legitimate solutions to these problems. In Canada, they were able to have a nuanced conversation about immigration free from the noise of populists, which means they were able to impose an immigration policy that is actually fair and that actually helps the individuals on the ground. Because Team England is the side which protects minorities and actually helps solve the issues which lead populist parties to come about in the first place. I beg you to propose. The first proposition speaker spent eight minutes, one second. I thank the first proposition speaker for their speech. And now, to open the case for the opposition, please welcome Wei Zhuyang. Proposition's argument is that right-wing populism is an ideology that can be distilled into five key characteristics. This is actually a scientific dissection. Honestly, I think it is very demeaning for their side to say that a quarter of all French people and millions of people all around the world are fundamentally nativistic. They are not politically correct. They just want to lash out at their establishment. I think that what they are doing is to reduce the legitimate viewpoints of all of these people, and I think it's evidence of their liberal arrogance to say that these views should be dismissed from society. We stand against that. What's our stance? One. We will not impose any restrictions on right-wing populist speech. Two, obviously, we don't have to stand for threats to an individual's safety, like death threats, and we will prosecute for acts of violence accordingly. Three, we broadly believe in the value of free speech, even those that are racially tinged. There may come a point where the intent is so malicious and the expressive function of such speech is marginal. In those cases, we will judiciously, judiciously prosecute for hate speech. The distinction might be porous, and when it is unclear, we will err on the side of free speech. Four, proposition's burden is not just to defend current laws restricting free speech, but they need to defend restricting the entirety of this political ideology, not just the white noise, but also the very legitimate viewpoints that are communicated. We're going to follow three arguments. One, the right-wing populist speech is legitimate and should not be restricted. This deals with the fundamental premise in their case that right-wing populism is something we don't want in society. Two, on the risks of government abuse. And three, my second speaker will explain how they harm political discourse. But before that, some rebuttals. They first told us that a ban was justified because a democracy is about a balance of rights. But this assumes that their policy is the only way to protect minorities. This is not true, because ethnic and racial minorities can always vote for the Democratic Party. We have democratic checks and balances that are in place. But you know who doesn't have an alternative? It's the millions of disenfranchised workers within the Rust Belt who cannot get another way to express their political views on their political spectrum. We allow for representation, we allow legitimate viewpoints to be expressed. They then say, but these are just distractions. It's just white noise. Right-wing populism isn't solution-oriented. I think this is honestly very demeaning for to see that half the people in America don't want to vote for actual policies. There are very legitimate policies that can be carried out. For instance, immigration quotas, trade protectionism, etc. It's not just all white noise. They then talk to us about how we may instill fear in minorities. Now, a person's response to such speech could be fear, but it could also be one of moral indignation. And there are many reasons to suggest why moral indignation is the more likely response rather than feeling threatened. The reason for this is because the cost of expressing free speech in the status quo is very low. A lot of this free, free this, this speech happens within social media. So these are people who agree with you, etc. There's a reason why when many African-Americans listen to Trump's tweet, the way they respond is not a fear or threat, but they respond by retweeting anti-Trump messages and having them shared and affirmed by people who share their beliefs. Before I move on, yes. Do you support restrictions on hate speech slander or incitement to violence when spread by right-wing populists? And if not, why not? 
I just told you my policy as to why at a certain point when if it's so egregious and the intent is so malicious and there's like very marginal expressive function, we think we will censor those, but we think for the vast majority of right-wing popular speech, it is not like that. That's a majority burden you have to prove. Their second argument to us was about discourse. The fundamental premise here is that right-wing populism is harmful. They never provided us an alternative to the problems we see today. My first substantive will now show you why right-wing popular speech is legitimate and should not be restricted. The premise of my first argument, why is free speech valuable? Our identities don't exist in a vacuum. They only gain meaning through expression and interaction with other beliefs. Hence, free speech is a fundamental right that we should not discard for mere convenience. Why is right-wing popular speech particularly vital? Since the 1990s, there has been a radical convergence towards neoliberal centrism in politics. Until recently, most major parties were pro-free trade and globalization. Democrats under Clinton converged with Republicans on free trade, while Labour in the UK co-opted many aspects of Thatcherism under Blair. Why is this consensus harmful? One, because a democracy without choice is not a democracy. When there's no party that comes close to representing your interests, then democracy has failed you. What right-wing populism does is to em embrace and endorse viewpoints which are perfectly defensible, like the government having a foremost duty to its citizens. So when they tell us it's white noise, we think it's a legitimate standpoint. Two, because it disenfranchises the millions of workers in the Rust Belt whose livelihoods have been imperiled by free trade and immigration. They are neglected by a Democratic Party preoccupied with identity politics and a Republican Party that stands for an unbridled free market. These are problems that exist now. They have no solution. Those left behind by free trade are left voiceless. What right-wing popular speech does is to signal that one, these communities have been disenfranchised, and two, that they are electorally determinant. Its absurgence demands the attention of the political establishment. It has catalyzed the rise in class-based left-leaning politics as Sanders rises in the Democratic Party, and Corbyn brings Labour back to its socialist roots. So even if we can agree that right-wing populism itself is a bad idea, it does result in a recalibration of the political spectrum that we think is good for representation. Now, we acknowledge that right-wing popular speech may have unsavory elements, and this deals with their premise that these unsavory speech is information. But before I move on, yes. Right-wing populists like Trump are known for fake news and lies. Why does that provide a valuable choice for voters if their votes are based on misinformation? One, I think the fact that they believe in this fake news or if they know it's fake news but still vote for it is still a legitimate form of political expression that they may not care this much about these facts. My second argument will show you how you worsen everything you're talking about. We think that even unsavory elements of speech has immense expressive value for two reasons. One, because it is unreasonable and elitist to demand that the disenfranchised speak only in the language and vernacular which the elites find palatable, what they call in their policy political correctness. Anti-immigration sentiment expressed without extensive qualification and hedging that we are familiar with in our political discourse does often sound quite racist, but not everyone has access to the sanitized language of Team England, particularly for the worst off. Two, because problematic language has a unique signaling what effect. Saying we need to overhaul immigration quotas doesn't convey the same intensity as saying immigrants should get out of our nation. The left of represents a fundamental disillusionment towards globalization and the belief that integration is hopeless. Hence, right-wing populism is an indispensable part of speech and democracy that should be preserved. My second argument is on the risks of government abuse. My thesis is that propositions policy is a vast expansion of the state's regulatory power over free speech. Given all the ambiguities involved, this is a huge target for abuse. Just listen to the five criteria they presented. What is nativism? What is an attack on the establishment? If I critique the New York Times, is that considered under their policy? 
This means that all their anti-truths and hate speech are incredibly fake. And this is particularly true because fake news, as you want to talk about in the POI, heavily involves judgments of character, like claims that Bill Clinton is a womanizer, or causal judgments that the police shot a black man because of racism. The truth of these claims cannot be objectively proven. Furthermore, whether something passes the threshold of hate speech is highly dependent on context and intent. They can't just throw this away with a mechanism in their policy. For instance, Jeremy Corbyn has said that immigrants undermine labor standards, but presumably, he wouldn't be prosecuted under proposition. Therefore, the content of such speech is subjective. But beyond that, the prosecution is subjective as well. In most of criminal law, governments don't prosecute every case because there are too many of them. This means they pick and choose. This is itself political because the legal process only begins once a case is brought to court. However, prosecutors have very strong personal incentives to act in the interest of their partisan masters because they want to gain a promotion and curry favour. This means that often, the kinds of speech that are curtailed are those that hurt the government's partisan interests. This means that they allow governments to artificially entrench power because the prosecution will only choose to attack those news and those forms of hate speech that disfavours them. It also means that on their side, journalists are either forced to self-censor because they don't want to be dragged to court or they're forced to review confidential speech and confidential sources when they have to defend themselves in court. Therefore, we believe that silence is oppression. We oppose. The first opposition speaker spent eight minutes, 14 seconds. I thank the first opposition speaker for their speech. And now, to continue the case for the proposition, please welcome Edward Bracey. It is problematic for side opposition to stand up and simply deny the racist vitriol that is not only endemic when we look at actual examples of right-wing populists on the ground, the Front National in France, Trump in the United States, Duterte in the Philippines, Gert Wilders in the Netherlands, the list goes on. But second of all, when we give you three mechanisms in our first speech as to why this kind of racist vitriol is not only endemic and the result of the fact that you have a very wide but very shallow coalition, but second of all, is almost inevitably transferred to the minorities about whom it is made. That's not good enough from side opposition in this debate. I'm going to bring you an argument as to how right-wing populism constitutes a fundamental affront to democracy and the rights of everyone else in a democracy who does not vote for these people. But before that, five pieces of rebuttal. The first thing they say is that minorities don't actually feel afraid. And the only evidence they give for this in their first speech is, oh, you have some African-American women retweeting anti-Trump tweets. Two responses. First, they do not engage with the three lines we bring you in our first speech as to how it is actually horrific to have someone who is in their political incentives to stand up and say that you are a less valuable human being than someone else. But I challenge side opposition to tell the women who are raped by Duterte's army because he legitimizes that, or, for example, the women who face race-based abuse in the United States as a direct response of Trump's riots, the Mexicans who are beaten up after Trump rallies, that they shouldn't be afraid in any meaningful sense of the word. Second thing they bring us is that, ah, these are voicing concerns that would otherwise be avoided. Four responses here. First, they concede in their very generic characterization of freedom of speech that, and when they stand up and say we support things like hate speech, that there are circumstances under which we are happy to tell people that they cannot vote for a particular individual. That is, if we can prove to you that the harms to the wider society, i.e. the democratic norms of that society and specific minority groups, are undermined. That is why they themselves do not believe that people 
people should be able to vote for the neo-Nazi party. And in doing so, they concede that democracy has to operate within a range. Second of all, they give us no analysis to why specifically addressing the concerns of these people is unique to right-wing populists and rather just right-wing movements. We were pointing to, for example, the Republican Party in the US, the Conservatives in the United Kingdom, groups that attack the very kinds of policies that they stand for on their side of the house, things like having tighter immigration controls, but do so without saying that Mexicans are rapists. Third, this falls down because they fundamentally have to prove to you that the benefits accrued to these people are actually achieved. We gave you structural analysis in our first speech that has not been responded to as to how the shallowness of your coalition necessarily means you do not help the people in the Rust Belt. You do not help the people who fundamentally give you their democratic mandate. Third point of rebuttal, they say these are legitimate policies. Again, two responses. First, we would challenge the factual legitimacy of lots of the policies that individuals like Duterte or Trump have passed, because the vast majority of them are not restricting trade or placing limits on the power of big businesses or giving more welfare to the working man. They are instead avoided because they recognize there is an inherent conflict between supporting Obamacare for those that want it and also not supporting Obamacare for those in your mandate who do not want it. The kinds of policies you actually get passed are the ban on trans individuals in the army, the ban on Muslims from particular countries, because those are the ones that is easiest to unite your base behind. Second of all, again, this is predicated on these policies actually being fulfilled and people actually wanting that. We point to the example of the fact that only 28% of United States citizens now support Donald Trump as evidence of the fact that no matter what he says about these policies, he's probably not implementing them. Fourth and finally of all, they throw out this really generic argument about how this policy could possibly be abused because of the vague criteria we implement. We tell you that the courts make exactly this kind of calculation the whole time. And you know how we know that's effective? Because they stand by exactly the same mechanism when they talk about things like slander, when they talk about things like hate speech, when they talk about things like incitement to violence. If you can disseminate specific criteria and attach them to those, hate, those instances of racial abuse, presumably we can also attach them to the five criteria we brought you in our first speech. Before I move on to my argument about how right-wing populism is fundamentally a front to everyone's rights, yes. Would you also prosecute every single person who calls those in the Rust Belt a immoral, horrible new Nazi? Come on, this obviously operates on a scale, right? So on the, short, on, the, on the smaller end of things, if an individual person is racist and inciting other people to go and physically harm someone else, then possibly. If that person does so with 100,000 Twitter followers and the direct response of that policy is that hate crime increases 41% in the week after they are elected, yes. Okay, my argument, right-wing populism and the affronts democracy. We think right-wing populism undermines the integrity of democracy and is therefore a threat to the democratic rights of all. Two strands. First, it poisons real democratic debate. There are a couple of pieces of context we need to understand for this argument to make sense. First, right-wing populists abuse the truth and shift their stances. That is because they have broad but shallow coalitions brought together by conflicting vague promises, i.e. they promise simultaneously to slash Obamacare but also to provide welfare to those in need. We point to the example of Duterte as someone who literally has a team of 20 people hired to act as internet trolls and spread misinformation on the internet. Second of all, they dress up their opponents as conspiratorial elites and fundamentally use that as a tool to not engage with them. They demonize their portrayal of their opponents. And as a consequence, when you try and challenge someone like Duterte or Trump or Gert Wilders on their prejudices, the response you get is, see, see, look, this is exactly what the liberal media is doing time and time again. Third thing on this, they rely on propagating fear and prejudice. Again, because they cannot unite their coalition through legitimate policy, because the people they draw together are drawn under vague and conflicting terms, they are reliant on common fears and prejudices. The takeaway from this argument is that the key tenant, the key 
appeal of lots of these individuals is inherently irrational. That is to say they rely on the propagation of a fear that probably should not exist. All of these fundamentally undermine the debate necessary to productive, competitive electoral politics. Why? First, because when you twist and muddy the truth of a debate, you challenge the reality in response to which that debate existed in the first place. When fake news and alternative facts are placed on the same pedestal as actual factual realities, you cannot have a functional discussion about certain issues. You cannot have a functional discussion about undocumented workers in the United States when it is a fact that Mexicans are rapists in the same way that it is a fact that Nieto is the president of Mexico. Second of all, likewise, you also cannot have a debate between two reasonable sides that engage with each other and provide for the voter fundamentally a response. That is, which of these two options is probably better for your interests? When one of those sides systematically fails to engage with the other, both are the consequence of the fact that they use literally who those other people are as a way of attacking them rather than attacking their policies. When second of all, they have terrorized the people that support them and struck fear into their hearts to the extent that they will not hear logical reason. Second strand of this argument is that these individuals attack the very framework of democracy. Part of their anti-establishment narrative on which they rely is to attack institutions like courts, like electoral processes. That is why we see individuals like Gert Wilders in the Netherlands and Donald Trump not only threatening to punish the courts if they get into power, but refusing to accept election results. Insofar as democracy relies on the balance of power that is supported both by the fact that you give a massive mandate to the individual that you give your vote to, but also by the fact that there are some checks and balances by an independent body to stop that person abusing that power. Democracy is fundamentally perverted when justices and the courts are fundamentally too afraid to do their job. The takeaway of this whole argument is twofold. First, if you weigh this debate based on democratic integrity and the rights of individuals, the very presence of right-wing populists makes it harder for people on the ground to come to terms with who they are voting for, why they are supporting that person, and ultimately what they should draw out of that. We would draw the analogy to perjury insofar as we're happy to limit free speech in the short term if it ensures the integrity of a process that is vital to our society in the long run. So proud to propose. The second proposition speaker spent eight minutes, eight seconds. I thank the second proposition speaker for their speech. And now to continue the case for the opposition, please welcome Ryan Wee. Let me be clear. This is a debate about the individuals whom politics has forgotten. The individuals alienated when factories closed down. Individuals who may not be experts in governance, but are experts in their own lives. Team England wants to talk about fear. I tell you, fear is when you lose hope because mainstream political parties no longer represent you. And honestly, it is very demeaning for Team England to come up here and tell us that the millions of individuals have been duped, that they have been deceived, and that they do not know what is right for them. We reject that on Team Opposition. Two questions. First, why is right-wing populism a legitimate viewpoint? Second, how do we improve politics? First, why is it a legitimate viewpoint? And I'd like to point out that the characterization actually shifted from first to second. And first of all, about these nice five scientific characteristics about what right-wing populism is. But second speaker is 
incitement to violence and hate speech. To be clear, we were very clear on our stance. All their problems about violence, we can prosecute the act of violence. They need to tell us why prosecuting the speech is the most important thing in this case. Furthermore, we talked about how we are willing to err on the side of caution when it comes to hate speech, but we think it is generally clear when conditions are egregious enough. I want to be clear, they did not actually touch our analysis about the general centrist consensus. All they said is that, but the Republican Party can represent you. Do you know why the Republican Party represents them now? Because Trump was elected. Because the Republican elites realized that for far too long, they have been leaving these individuals behind and not caring about their interests. To be clear, the Republicans did not represent these people before the, before the right wing came to power. That is why when they say this drags politics into the gutter, I would say it is not a gutter. I would say it is views that people want, views that they actually stand for, policies they actually care about. And I think that these individuals individuals do know what is good for them. So we can agree with our first speaker's principle that democracy is about a balance of rights. Yes, we think you are taking away the fundamental right for these individuals to have a party stand for them. And we think that is a right we should protect. They say, ah, but there's fake news and there's misinformation and people aren't debating on truth and facts. I think generally people are becoming more aware of partisan biases. I think democracy actually solves for fake news because fake news just discredits its source. Think about it. Alex Jones basically spread the lie of how Sandy Hook was a conspiracy created by the government. After that, he pretty much lost all the credibility he had. I think people can discern and people who are voting for Trump Maybe they, believe, maybe they understand there is fake news, but if they decide that the policies that he is standing for are more important than this fake news, then I think that is a choice they should be able to make, that even if they don't believe everything he says, that the fundamental things he stands for are important. No thank you. Furthermore, we think that on our side, we pointed out very clearly how sometimes what they call unplatable are things that we need to respect. They completely dropped my first speaker's two tiers of how sometimes unplatable language is essential to expressing thoughts. How in team affirmative, they police thoughts in a way that discriminates against the not well-off. Born into a, being born into an elite aristocracy is not a privilege we all share. Some people, for some people, it is understandable that it is important for them to be able to express their thoughts in this language, and we think that is an important thing we should respect. Furthermore, we talked about the color and intensity of thought, how sometimes things they call unpalatable are ways and the only way for these individuals to express their through political choice. So, the solutions that these politicians stand for may not be perfect. But we think that the point is that these solutions are far closer to what people actually want. Even if they're not perfect, you'd rather have an imperfect solution that at least is congruent with what people want rather than a perfect solution that does not be in line with what they want at all. And to be clear, Trump has done things. He has withdrawn from the TPP. He has gotten many automobile factories back, creating jobs in America. We think these are important things we should have. And if transpopularity is false, that's precisely the point. If a politician doesn't deliver, he'll become less popular. So democracy corrects for this. Before I move on, Yes. Prosecuting the act of violence is the status quo. What did that do for the hundreds of Muslim women in America who were attacked after Trump was elected? So we think that they just failed to, deal, failed to actually show us the link between how right-wing populism is this exclusive thing that results in all of this violence. We think that all the mudslinging has been happening for ages, and the point is that they have failed to show us why exclusively this is the way they can have. Furthermore, we think we were very clear that the idea of violence is something we can prosecute, and it is decreasing when we prosecute this violence. Moving back, we think that the point is that we told you how they undermine democracy, and this deals directly with their second speaker's substantive. We think it is not irrational when these individuals engage in this politics. There was never a golden age of politics when we were all rational and debated on all purely facts. 
politics has always been about character, always been about who people are. And we think that if people on the ground, voters, decide that that is what is most important for them, that is something that we should respect. Furthermore, they said, but you attack institutions. We think it is generally a good idea if you keep a check on courts. When courts have been filled with elites who do not care about people on the ground, when the entire judicial system is stacked against you because it is filled with elites who do not understand what you are. I think that is fundamental violence upon your dignity. So if they want to talk about violence, I would say the lack of representation is violence to these individuals. Furthermore, they just dropped my first week's analysis about how it is incredibly insulting for them to tell us that minorities always cower in fear. We think that's not true. We think many minorities are indignant, particularly in social media. Like they said, when there is actually a community of people around you who will back you up, who will tell you why this is important to you. We think on this ground alone, minorities are protected on our side. But the point is, they didn't write our, first, our second substantive on abuse, on how these very five scientific criteria are incredibly subjective. What is political correctness? What is nativism? And in that case, we told you how they exercise a chilling effect on discourse, when how they literally give governments the tool to crack down on individuals. We think that's wrong. My constructive for today on how Team England harms political discourse. So this argument takes them on their absolute highest. Even if this debate is to be judged on the metric of preventing misinformation, even if it is to be judged on the metric of making speech more palatable, why is it that on our side, we are able to better these metrics? Know that Team England's policy is necessarily known to the public. For example, if Breitbart is punished, it will have to retract its things and provide a public apology to people on the ground. This leads to a few harms. Firstly, Team England pushes people towards less credible news sources. This policy literally reinforces the one strongest narrative that drives distrust of traditional media sources like CNN, that the liberal establishment is out to control what you read. Now that everything that is published in the traditional media has the imprimatur of government approval, it is seen by right-wing populists as an extension of government control. This is terrible. There will always be alternative news sources that provide a less credible form of news. And obviously, we cannot completely censor WhatsApp chains, forums, face-to-face conversations that occur in daily life. Therefore, on their side, they ensure that people turn towards these less credible news sources. And to be clear, this is not about the most extreme individuals. It is about the vast majority of individuals on the fence who subscribe to both Breitbart and the New York Times on Twitter, but whom Team England pushes straight towards less credible news sources. Secondly, Team England only ends up amplifying the unsavory aspects of right-wing populism. In the status quo, many right-wing populist leaders are exercising a significant moderating effect because they want to become more politically viable. In France, Marine Le Pen kicked her father out of the National Front because he was very strongly in favour of Holocaust denial. We want this effect to continue. However, the main reason why these leaders can engage in moderation is because they are currently trusted by their supporters as legitimate ideological leaders. When these leaders say that something is wrong, their supporters trust it. But if the state itself starts to crack down on these forms of unsavory speech, these leaders lose their moderating ability because it now looks like the state has forced them to make concessions. Any attempt to moderate now looks like it has been engineered by the liberal elite. So if they want to talk about making political speech better, I think it is harmed on their side. If they want to talk about decreasing misinformation, I think it is harmed on their side. From first speaker, we were very clear. We stand by the baseline that silence is oppression. We oppose. The second opposition speaker spent eight minutes, seven seconds. I thank the second opposition speaker for their speech. And now to continue the case for the proposition, please welcome Kenza Wilkes. You know, the second speaker is right when he says that this is about people that don't have representation. 
But what side opposition has thus far failed to prove in this debate is why, once these populists move out of the fore and stop poisoning the well of discussion that happens in democracies across the world, while right-wing politicians cannot step in in their stead to support these people in a way that does not contradict all of the five reasons that we told you, these populists behave that undermines democracy. Their last speaker wanted to stand up and say, well, you haven't shown your links to violence. Ladies and gentlemen, that is fake news as we see it. Because all they've wanted to put forward is model shape. What are your categories? How do we know if they're a populist? We give you five distinct reasons as to why we think these individuals are likely to fall into identifiable categories of being populist. But ultimately, they wanted only to engage with the extreme end of our scale, i.e. the banning of these individuals from running on the ballot box. Remember all of the other policies that we support, like no platforming them at universities, like stopping their social media pages from operating. These are all ways in which we can try and decrease the influence these populists are able to have. But finally, when their last speaker wants to raise a point about the chilling effect, ultimately, that is far worse when debate cannot happen in nuanced and moderate ways like we have today, because instead people are standing up and shouting that Mexicans are rapists. Three areas of clash in this debate. Firstly, is this legitimate? Secondly, the provision of solutions and the effects on minorities. And thirdly, the stability of democracy. So on the first of which, is this legitimate? They stand up and give a principle that says, free speech is valuable and these individuals need to be able to engage. No, this does not directly engage with the principle that we give you about the balance of rights for individuals to be safe from fear. If you create an atmosphere of fear and an ignorance of the truth, you're ultimately far more likely to persecute vulnerable minorities. Minorities. The response that they give as well, lack of representation is violence. Ladies and gentlemen, no, violence is violence. And given that they've done nothing to contend the fact that we've seen increased rates of attacks on vulnerable minorities in the aftermath of the aftermath of the US election or the aftermath of Poland and the Law and Justice Party being put in power, or the example that we know all too well, that of Brexit, and individuals that no longer feel safe in their homes, on their streets or communities because of rises and attacks and persecutions on you just because you're wearing a hijab. But secondly, they say, well, these people need to have a choice. But we question how meaningful that choice actually is if this politics is skewed away from key issues. Because what we told you is that populist parties overwhelmingly cannot have specific policies because they have to please a broad coalition of voters. It's very hard for you to have policies that both say we all provide welfare for the people at the bottom, i.e. Obamacare, but we also want to repeal those very acts that protect people. That means you don't get tangible policies that protect people, but only assertions. But finally here, they say, well, we got to give the people what they want. Ultimately, that is not the obligation of a democracy. We think that we should have parameters within the discussion occurs, that we do not allow anti-Semitism just because it's what some people want. That is called a tyranny of the majority that overwhelmingly harms the most vulnerable members of our society. But finally, they say, well, these politicians will likely moderate themselves once they're put into power. See the example of Le Pen. Note, crucially, this is reliant on giving them a platform that allows them to get votes in the first place, or in the very worst circumstances, make it into power. Given that Arthur gives you analysis as to why, once they are in power, they're likely to put forward policies that harm those very minorities. We're not willing to allow them to moderate. We would rather nip them in the bud before they're allowed to wind up populations into voting them into power. Let's look secondly 
at the provisions of solutions and the effects on minorities. We give you concrete reasons as to why these populist politicians are reliant on harms to minorities in order to get into power. Firstly, we tell you that they overwhelmingly scapegoat these people to hold a coalition because they look to simple answers for complex questions. The only response that side opposition give is, well, some African Americans are not upset. They just retweet their opposition. No, crucially, that is an assertion that the vast majority of African Americans behave in that way. But secondly, we think there are many vulnerable individuals that would actually be quite insulted by your characterization of these people willing, willing, like willingly just brushing aside these accusations of their lack of humanity. But secondly, more crucially, a permission mechanism is created, and they do nothing to engage with this analysis. Because if the orange man at the front of the room can stand up and say, well, it's okay for me to grab whatever by whatever, or it's okay for me to decide that Mexicans are all rapists, then people who are not predisposed to violence under the status quo are far more likely to engage in those very acts of violence. That's why we see what were ordinary Americans now deciding to punch Black Lives Matter protesters in the face. We think that is a fundamental harm that arises from populism itself. But thirdly and finally, they get into power and they have the ability to implement policies. And this is a direct clash with their material about, well, we need to give these people some kind of choice and some kind of representation. If emboldening these individuals by giving them a populist platform from which to spew their views, you actually harm the debate and harm the rights of these individuals, it cannot be legitimate. But next here, they say, well, this is the, and I quote, elitist vernacular. And the logic here is that less educated people are unable to have debates about immigration unless someone stands up at the front of the room and shouts, get the immigrants out. Fundamentally, we think that is a patronizing characterization of how these individuals are able to engage in debates. But secondly, we think it's what is far more likely is that you shut out nuanced discussions. Because if you think about things like the US primaries, individuals like Cruz or uh, Cruz or Pence wanted to have discussions about the policies and the ailments that globalization has caused for these people. Instead, we end up having conversations about the length of Donald Trump's fingers. Ultimately, we think that is far worse for the people that you want to protect under your side of the house. Because remember, we can provide real alternatives. So when they say, and I quote, not giving these individuals representation is an act of violence, if other politicians, as they likely will, step into the fray and represent these people instead, when populists cannot fill that vacuum and pollute the discussion, we're far more likely to protect these individuals. Let's look thirdly and finally at the stability of democracy. Their major claim here is to say, well, these courts act in irresponsible ways because, and I quote, prosecution is subjective. Now, they obviously ran into a problem with this when they also supported defamation suits and those very same courts making subjective decisions. Notably, they drop it in their most recent speech. But secondly, on your side of the house, what Gert Wilders can do is intentionally try and get defamation suits brought against him and use the fact that those suits have been brought to him in order to gain more popular support. If we shut down his Twitter page, he is unable to get those channels of discourse that ultimately mean he is more likely to get votes and more likely to be put into power. But finally here, they say politics is about character and, pay, and it's okay for people to make decisions on this basis. Instead, you create a chilling, a chilling effect on discourse, which harms those individuals. Ultimately, we think it is okay with limiting the amount of discourse that individuals like Breitbart or organizations that actively try to incite violence or limit the rights of minority groups in through populist measures if that means that we are far more able to secure the rights of vulnerable individuals. 
At the end of this debate, you have to remember we had two criteria. The first of which this was justified for the protection of minority groups. And secondly, that it was effective in challenging the disproportionate control that populists are able to wield over the most vulnerable. For all of these reasons, so proud to propose. The third proposition speaker spent eight minutes to second. I thank the third proposition speaker for their speech. And now, to continue the case for the opposition, please welcome Away Ho. The rise of right wing populism is not a communicative issue, it is a social economic political issue. That's why when their policy was to remove symptoms like fake news and to sanitize racist language, it honestly misses the point because we will never realize why these individuals have these opinions and these beliefs to begin with. That's how we actually nip the problem at its source. That's why we think on our side of the house, it's incredibly important we hear why they believe in these things. Even if the way they say it is imperfect, it's important that we know what these beliefs are. That's the first strategic mistake coming from their side. The second strategic mistake is their lack of response to all of analysis since first about how this policy allows for massive government abuse. Mind you, this policy literally gives the ruling elite the ability to silence one-third of all Americans and all opposition parties, which are quite powerful right now within the political scene. This is the greatest expansion of government control of free speech we have ever seen in the last few decades. I think they need to engage with our substantives. No, thank you. Three areas of clash. First, who are the victims? Second, what opinions are valid? And third, why all opinions are attacked on their side of the house? First. Who are the victims? We said from the beginning of this debate that minorities are victims. But so are those who have been left behind by in the dust of unfettered capitalism. So are those who have been sidelined by the political elite that see them as irrational bigots that, don't, that ought not to be listened to. These are people that currently don't even have a political party to cater for their class discrimination. These are people who don't have the courts to defend their supposed constitutional rights because they're seen as stubborn people that cannot engage in discourse, as they say, on the outside of the house. These are victims that live in fear because they're carry captured by the liberal elite as immoral, deplorable bigots. They're labeled as someone who's stubborn, irrational, uneducated by team proposition, by their own leaders within these countries. That is the atmosphere that they currently live in. And they are victims that we need to protect in this debate. We thought they were important in this debate. We heard absolutely no response as to why they protect them as well. The response in third was that, but they can still run for office, but we just won't let them campaign or talk about what they want to do in office. That's honestly nonsensical. So how do their rights compare the rights of minorities? Now, we understand that minorities are important in this debate. What we do think is that minorities have access to a lot more protection than this specific group of individuals who have been casted away by unfettered capitalism and globalization. Why is this the case? One, because minorities can be empowered if they respond with indignation and not fear. We talked about how the domino effect on social media means that you genuinely have the capacity to feel strong and safe within your communities. And is this perfect? No. But we think that on the comparative, it's a lot more likely that you have an entire democratic party willing to defend you, that you're much more better off on, the outside, on your side of the house. But second of all, the hurt is asymmetric, which is to say that many of these individuals have been equally as slandered and threatened on the streets by the liberal elite coming from your side of the house. If this is a response out of fear, then I think that's something that's legitimate as well. So the important point to take away from this is that current minorities who already have the democratic party to defend them have access 
to many other forms of protection. Are they perfect? Absolutely not. But for these individuals who currently have been sidelined by the entire political elite, this is the only way they can have their voices heard. That is the comparative we're willing to defend. Eventually, they shrunk their case because their first speaker said the speech was really bad. But they say, oh, no, no, no. It's only speech that results in hate crime. Here's the problem. We said from the beginning of this debate that we're happy to prosecute for the physical crime of hurt in itself. The problem with their case is that they were never able to prove structural reasons why all forms of right-wing populist speech will always and necessarily result in hate crimes coming from the outside of the house. There might be a certain correlation, but no definite causation coming from the outside of the house. So yes, we agree. This debate is about a balance of rights. There are boundaries to what's acceptable in democracy. But this is the boundary we need to accept. For too long, we have remained in our neoliberal consensus, and we ought to expand the boundary of opinions that these people have access to. Second point of contention. Point of Before that, yes. Why, when we stop people from running on a populist platform, will they not choose to appeal to these forgotten individuals on a purely right-leaning platform? No, because the only way you can truly and genuinely represent these people's beliefs is to use the same populist rhetorics that actually represent how disgusted they are with the current rate of globalization and unfettered capitalism. They say that the current system of right-wing populism has a disparate coalition, but they say in the same speech that there's economic dislocation which binds them all together. Here's the thing, no one is saying we're only going to have a single policy, right? Many of these politicians can practice being a right-wing populist politician and craft better policies in the long term. But the important point here is that if so many people are affected by economic dislocation, regardless of whether you eventually get a policy, I think it's important that these voices are at least heard in parliament through these politicians to begin with. No, thank you. Furthermore, we say that racist speech, was, racist speech was still valuable in a democracy. Firstly, because not everyone has access to the same education you had. Most of us in this room, probably in a debate speech, once said something that was insensitive when we talked about women's rights or minorities. We had, were fortunate enough to have a debate coach tell us that that was wrong and to never say that again. Unfortunately, for many people living in the Rust Belt, they did not have access to that kind of education. I think it's wrong for you to punish people for their vocabulary and tone. But second of all, it's an important signaling effect. We think that saying that we should have a massive overhaul of the immigration system compared to all immigrants should get out now are two very different opinions because the latter shows how much disgust and how much intensity you believe in those opinions. And that quality is important for us to present as well. That's why when they wanted to have a substantive about the sanctity of institutions, I think it's good that we criticise institutions. When these institutions are dominated by the elite, we ought to criticise them as well. But here's the fundamental problem with their case. They assume that these beliefs are superimposed by politicians, that otherwise these people would not have had these ideas. This is incredibly false. Those racist beliefs that they talked about are understandable aspects of human nature that are in response to economic hardship, right? People see this all around them. Let's not kid ourselves and pretend like the Philippines isn't dominated by a significant number of Chinese businessmen, right? Let's not pretend that there's no genuine relationship between migrant inflows and wage decrease for these individuals. These are things that politicians tell you. These are things that people observe in their daily basis and make those connections for themselves. So at the point in which their only policy is to remove politicians parroting these ideas, they don't actually solve the root cause of this problem. In contrast, they force people into WhatsApp groups, into Facebook groups, into the same echo 
chambers that they think are so horrible without the same defamation lawsuits that they think can be used to regulate these opinions. That is why when they were never able to engage with the analysis of ordinary Americans, ordinary people on the ground, and what their policy would do to them, the outside has lost this debate because they never presented us a meaningful solution and mechanism to their problems they've identified. But lastly, why all opinions are under threat? The only response you get to this is, but you still have defamation lawsuits, so that's really bad. Here's the thing, obviously defamation lawsuits are a lot more restricted within the status quo. The kinds of criteria are a lot more stricter compared to five words or five ideas you give us or the gener generic idea of right-wing populism. And furthermore, it's not even a criminal case which is prosecuted, which your policy does. But the important thing to take away from this is that necessarily all of this is subjective and context-specific. Jeremy Corbyn might very well say that the inflow of immigrants might reduce labour standards for every single person. He in fact did say that. But is he a right-wing populist? No. This reveals to you how many of the statements that are made are context-specific. It requires you to know what's going to happen. There was no response therefore, to all of analysis about prosecutorial discretion, how the Attorney General can make decisions of which political dissidents to take out. This is a very dangerous power for us to give governments to, uh, to begin with. For all of these reasons, it's outside that understands that these people are victims that need to be protected. Silence is oppression. The third opposition speaker spent 8 minutes 16 seconds. I thank the third opposition speaker for their speech. We now move to the four minutes concluding reply speeches. To deliver the opposition's reply speech, please welcome Brian Wee. Members of the House, violence isn't just physical. Violence comes from an empty stomach where you have no more money to buy food because immigrants have taken away your jobs. Violence comes from anxiety over the future of your children because you do not know if you will be able to send them to college. I think that for far too long, the political establishment has enacted acts of violence against one third of people in America and around the world. We have taken away their jobs, their livelihoods, and their dignity. And our team affirmative wants to take away their voices too. We do not stand for that. Let us look at the two words that emerged at the end of this debate and understand how exactly Team Affirmative's world was oppressive and chilling. In the world of Team Affirmative, they do not understand what is happening in politics. They do not understand of how the centrist consensus has been created ever since Blair and Clinton. How ever since that, that consensus was created, millions of people around the world have not had any politician to vote for or to support who represents their true views. They said, but why can't the person just be right-wing and not right-wing populist? Because the point is that we told you right from first, the structural incentives for people to remain in the centre, of how the structural incentives means that if you're slightly to the right of the centre, you can capture all the voters on the right, and therefore there is no incentive to move further to the right once this consensus has been created. And that is why we don't actually know where they're drawing the line. What exactly is the line between a right-wing person who is not that racist and a right-wing populist who is a bit more racist but represents different views? Where exactly do they draw the line? I would suggest that if their main harm is minorities, on their side, they have to err on the side of caution. They have to take away a huge swath of views that legitimately represent what these individuals stand for. And to be clear, 
in Team Affirmative's world, it is not only about people running for office. It is about your ability to express your deeply held beliefs, to express your discontent with a political elite that has neglected you, to show that you are disgusted that they have left you behind. So it is not about just running for office. Don't let the other speaker misrepresent our case. In the world of Team Affirmative, they stand for expression, but not too much, just so you can't cause violence. But then we told them, that's a pretty draconian world. Many people call other things many other people's names. There are many acts that cause violence in the world today. On the other side, they have subjective criteria in the world of Team Affirmative that allow governments to abuse it. They said, ah, but you have laws on your side too, so it's a bit different. No, I would suggest the difference is that on our side, we are willing to err on the side of, of free speech. Whereas on your side, you told, you, you told us very clearly that in Team England's world, they are going to err on the side of caution because minorities are the priority in this debate. We think that on the other side, they exercise a chilling effect on this cause. But you know what? If their problem is about minorities, I think they are harmed in the world of Team England. Because in my substantive, I told you very clearly about the moderating effect. Now, they just give a one-line assertion back in third speaker that, oh, it's when they come into power. No. I told you about the structural incentives that these individuals have to moderate and how you disempower the people who take away the racist and anti-Semitic rhetoric that you don't like. So in the world of Team Affirmative, that happens even more. So let us escape the world of Team Affirmative and go to the world of Team Opposition. The world of Team Opposition was very clear on our stance. We believe that these individuals need a voice. They need someone to stand up for them and they need someone to be there to represent their views. We understood that sometimes unpalatable language is the only way for these individuals to express their views because it expresses the color, the tone, the intensity, and the beliefs they have. Analysis we gave you from first not responded to in all these speakers, and it would be, be a bit too late if they try to respond in reply. In the world of opposition, we understood that we are prosecuting violent acts, and therefore that is not part of the debate. We understood that the true victims here are the individuals who have been left behind. I want all of you to ask yourselves, why do you debate? I think all of us debate because we believe in what we do. We believe in the power of words. We believe in the power of discourse. We believe in the power of speech. But this is a power that we should not just keep to ourselves. This is a power that we should give to people who we do not agree with, people who have been left behind and for whom speech is the one way they can reclaim their dignity. We understood on Team Opposition that silence is oppression. We are very proud to oppose. <laughs> The opposition reply speakers spend four minutes, 11 seconds. And now to conclude the case for the proposition and the debate as a whole, please welcome Edward Bracey. The reason side opposition lost this debate is that I've said some dodge stuff in my time, but Lewis and Fish pointed out time and time again and I stopped saying that stuff. But nobody tells Donald or Duterte that saying that Mexicans are rapists or that you can grab women by whatever is unacceptable. And in fact, when he says it, when he gets cheers, when he takes votes from legitimate politicians, he not only poisons democracy, but he makes people feel afraid, he makes people feel worthless, and he violates their rights on a fundamental level. Two questions when adjudicating this debate. First, legitimacy. Second of all, outcomes for the public. On legitimacy, the proposition thrust went like this. We said that there existed a balance, and if the existence of one group led to the fundamental abuse of another, that was unacceptable. But they said, oh, but these, these people don't actually feel fear because, you know, they retweet things the whole time. We said, is that a joke? No, 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 guys, you're right. Women don't feel fear when they are terrified of being raped by an army that Duterte says 
is legitimate. Muslim, Muslim men and women in the United States don't feel fear when they see on their screens, night after night, people and families just like theirs being beaten in the streets in the aftermath of Trump's election. But they came back and said, ah, we can prosecute for these crimes. We pointed out not only that we already prosecute for these crimes and racial hatred still happens, but second of all, that is after the fact. If a group leads to abuse, irrespective of whether you then prosecute that abuse, that group is illegitimate. But they then said, ah, you constrict the fundamental rights of individuals to access democracy. We had three responses here. We said, first, that is factually inaccurate. If you look at the early debates between Cruz and Rubio, they are talking about exactly the issues you discussed. They're talking about tighter immigration controls. They're talking about how we distribute welfare to the most vulnerable. But second of all, we took them at their best. We said, OK, why don't you have individuals stepping in to replace these people? Because Macron's party is only one year old, and why would you not step into the void? And they said, ah. Crucially, the language that these people use is what means they are the only people that can do it. We asked them in a POI, why do Mexicans have to be characterized as rapists for us to have a discussion about immigration? Now, the fact that they could not reply to that and they could not tell you fundamentally why that language of abuse and that language of intimidation is so essential is part and parcel of the reason they lost today's debate. The third thing we put into this was we said, this is contingent insofar as there's no point having, your representation is not functional if that representation does not bring anything for you. And that's the point at which the fact that they did not engage with our first speaker's analysis about broad but shallow coalitions that operate under a veneer of legitimacy that trick people into thinking that they're being represented but are not is so problematic. But we said, OK, you want to talk about democracy and rights? Let's talk about the fundamental abuse of the rights of everyone else in a democracy to make fair and free democratic choices and how that is undermined. And if you check your notes, I think you'll find they did not respond to four minutes of analysis from our second speaker. Problematic, to say the least. Second area of this debate, outcomes for the public. The proposition line went as follows. In our first speech, in our second argument, we told you that it is harder to address the issues that they claim to care about because you spread people so thin across this coalition. And we told you that factually, this is not happening. Policies are being passed like the Muslim ban, policies are being passed like banning trans people from the army, and the fact that 28%, only 28% of the United States public continues to support Trump is indicative of the fact that he does not have the tools to empower people people and give them what they want. They did not respond to this argument at any stage, but they ran their own principle about representation. We asked you a fundamental question. Is representation meaningful if that person does not want to do what you want them to do? And for all the arguments they threw out in their second speech and then dropped about chilling effects, about less creditable news sources, by the way, what is a less creditable news source than Breitbart? They could not engage with the core tenet of this debate. And that was how do we provide for people issues that they actually need? And the last thing they threw out right at the end in their third speech is, ah, these people will be encouraged to moderate. Because, yeah, you're right. Trump has really moderated himself since he got into power. He stopped saying all of these horrific things. He stopped banning Muslims from countries. He stopped cracking down on people. He stopped cutting welfare to fundamentally the most vulnerable. You're right. Duterte hasn't encouraged his army to go out and, wait and rape women. Oh, wait. That is the status quo. That is the reality they had to defend this debate. And that is why they lost. <laughs> The proposition reply speaker spent four minutes, 10 seconds. Thank you to all speakers for this debate. The judges are now going to deliberate in a separate room and make their decisions. They will then announce the result of this debate. Thank you. Baik pemirsa, demikianlah tadi sesi Grand Final World School Debating Championship 2017. Untuk beberapa saat ke depan, kami masih menunggu hasil penilaian dari adjudicator atau Dewan Juri. Jadi jangan kemana-mana, kami akan segera kembali.
Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome one of the judging panel members to give feedback and the debate and announce the winning team. First of all, as finals goes, this was one of the better finals we've had in several years. So congratulations to both teams. <laughs> Excellent across the board in style, content, and strategy. So I'll go through them one by one. This was one debate for style. Had a slight stylistic advantage to another team. And in fact, it actually swayed the debate for some adjudicators, particularly the use of emotive language to prove the point. Um, in terms of strategy, we did think that teams focused on the right things, allocated enough time to arguments. It was a dynamic debate that con consistently evolved and shifted ground, so that's not an issue, right? So the issue for today's debate is really content, and we looked at that in several issues. First is the question of legitimacy. Can you limit free speech? The answer both sides is yes. But the extent of that limitation became where the debate boiled down to. Prop says this speech is potentially harmful, and they proved it with compelling examples, which swayed some of the panelists around issues like Trump, uh, political parties in Europe, and my personal favorite, Duterte. Uh, <clears throat> Opposition counter counters this by saying, sure, if the speech is harmful, then punish the action, not the speech. And they said correlation is not causation. We didn't feel this was significantly forwarded in the round. We felt that there might be a slight advantage on the legitimacy question to the proposition, but there are other issues in the round. So let's move on to the second issue. On a question of minorities and marginalized groups. As you can tell, I'm not gonna announce the result at the start. <laughs> so on minorities and marginalized groups, we felt that proposition had very compelling arguments about what will happen to religious people, to women, when the speech propagates the kind of culture of hatred I see in my precedent. This, we felt, was a wise move, and actually felt a lot of the panelists did feel that you actually won this part of the debate. Um, some judges, however, saw it quite different, differently and looked at the metric that proposition used and said, if the metric is fear and violence, then marginalized sectors, people have been disenfranchised by globalization and the capitalist world, do experience the same degree of fear and violence. Um, and therefore, they should have a voice in these democratic institutions. England says, well, it doesn't matter because if they represent you, the policies are a nuance. They are, they pander to the least common denominator. Essentially, there won't be any proper representation in the outcomes of the policy. Singapore counters that by saying, well, maybe it's not coming from the politician. Maybe it's coming from the lived reality of people. That's why these things are so popular. Things, for example, like jobs being gone or people in a little bit of an exaggerated fashion, starving or getting hungry. Um, so these are individuals that Singapore was fighting for, individuals who've been left behind by centrist politics. Singapore also says that if your standard is fear and violence, then the chilling effect that you will have on the opposition parties will be a massive problem. What's going to happen, for example, to Corbyn? 
And to be fair to proposition, they did say that courts that you trust should be able to adjudicate these particular matters. Uh, but some, some judges didn't feel this was enough of a response because of the selective prosecution point that came in from the opposition bench. England then came back and said that the discussion will be toxic and undemocratic. Whereas this other side of the house said that, well, toxicity of the conversation depends on who's viewing the conversation. For a lot of these individuals, that's the language that's, that best represents their emotions and feelings. So it all boiled down to, and for most of the judges on 0.5 margins, which team reduces fear, trepidation, and violence on the part of individuals, particularly the minorities concerned. Most of the judges were persuaded that the working class is equally as hurt as most minorities. So in an 8-1 split, this debate goes to Singapore. to present the trophy to Team Singapore. Ladies, ladies and gentlemen, your new world champions, Singapore. Ya, baik pemirsa, demikianlah tadi siaran langsung Grand Final World School Debating Championship 2017 yang mempertemukan England dan Singapura. Dan setelah masing-masing debater mengemukakan pendapatnya tentang larangan kebebasan berpendapat, juri akhirnya memutuskan Singapura menjadi pemenang ajang World School Debating Championship 2017 ini. Selamat untuk kedua tim karena... Bisa sampai di babak Grand Final WSDC 2017 ini dan selamat untuk tim Singapura yang akhirnya memenangkan ajang ini. Dengan berakhirnya Grand Final World School Debating Championship 2017 antara England dan Singapura ini maka berakhir pula lah program kami. Kami ingatkan bahwa nanti malam pada pukul 19 waktu Indonesia Tengah Anda bisa menyaksikan closing ceremony atau upacara penutupan. World School Debating Championship 2017. Tetap saksikan tayangan televisi edukasi karena kami terus menayangkan program-program yang santun dan mencerdaskan. Majulah pendidikan Indonesia dan majulah Indonesia.